Harvard Divinity School. Signs of Your True Voice. First Words, Breakthroughs, Trust, and Transformation. April 19th, 2022. Hello and welcome. My name is Ariella Ruth Goldberg, and I'm the events coordinator at the Center for the Study of World Religions here at Harvard Divinity School. I'm also a poet, and I'm grateful to be involved in curating programming in the Center series on poetry, philosophy, and religion. Today's event is the fourth event in this, the series this academic year, and we will wrap up on Wednesday, May 4th, with a talk and reading by Robin Schiff. Videos of past events in the series are available on our website. And as always, the best way to keep up to date with our events is to join our mailing list. Brenda Shaughnessy is the author of five books, poetry books, including The Octopus Museum, which was a New York Times notable book. A new collection, Tanya, is forthcoming in 2023. And Liquid Flesh, new and selected poems will appear this fall. Recipient of a 2018 Literature Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters and a 2013 Guggenheim Foundation Fellowship, she is Professor of English at Rutgers University, Newark. Our event today is titled Signs of Your True Voice, First Words, Breakthroughs, Trust, and Transformation, a poetry reading and craft talk with Brenda Shaughnessy. I was fortunate to have the opportunity to study with Brenda when I was an undergraduate at the New School. I believe the course was titled Love Poems, although I think she might be able to confirm that. It's an immense pleasure to host her today as her writing and teaching has been incredibly influential to my own poems. So please join me in welcoming Brenda Shaughnessy. Hi, thank you so much, Ariella Ruth, for that. That was just really nice. Um, thank you to the Harvard Divinity School folks, um, friends and new friends, especially my brilliant former student, um, the wonderful poet, Ariella Ruth. I remember vividly your talent and seriousness all those years ago, and I'm overjoyed to share this room with you here now. Um, I appreciate everyone who makes these virtual events part of a glowing and supportive community, which is so inspiring and impressive. And I can't wait to tune in to hear Robin Schiff. Um, is it next month? Because she is dazzling. And I just, I love her work and I love her. I'm so grateful to be part of this. So truth, uh, we're not in a great place. COVID still rampaging. We don't know if we're safe. We know that Russia is waging war on Ukraine and that the US is divided between love and hate, between plutocrats and populists, between human rights and what seems like human sacrifice. We've all lost a lot. Family, friends, health, time, work, play, windows of opportunity, peace of mind. Between wildfires and earthquakes and hurricanes and the melting permafrost, our planet shows the damage we've done the wounds gaping and sometimes swallowing us. What can we do, we ask? We must give back of ourselves. We writers have been given a gift and we must give it back. What we have to give is our witness, our conscience, our care, our voices, the very breath that breathes the air the earth gives us moment by moment. Coming together to write and to give our deepest insights to each other is a key way we can give back. It's not enough, nothing is, but it's a start and a continuation and a lifeline. 
writers be givers if even if we can't ever be forgiven we can continue to give a true poetic voice uh, emerges when a poet commits to speaking their living truth not when they get good enough because poetry is nothing if not voice if not the living poets breathing their very own lives into words then transferred to the page to become inhaled and breathed out again by readers who are themselves often poets. And the relationship of the written poem to the living poet has a mystery at the center, even though in many ways we are one and the same. The mystery is what keeps the relationship dynamic. Can we ever truly know ourselves? Can we ever truly express ourselves? Does poetry provide a kind of superhuman ability to render, to know, to ponder, to glean or to express? Can poetry make us go beyond ourselves, think and feel and live bigger than our regular lives allow? Does poetry make us magical? Does our magic make poetry? Our poems are written with our own well-known blood and tears and lived experience of many years, but somehow when we go to read and assess them, to confirm and understand them, we are confronted with this mysterious relation again. Is that me writing? Or some fugue state muse I somehow randomly embodied one night? Is that my story? Or am I so filled with influences and fantasies and wrongheaded YA plots that I can't tell the difference anymore? We have so many questions about why we write what we write, who is this poorest and gullible and hungry person writing my poems? Who is feeding her? Is she for real? These questions are painful, making us feel we're not ourselves. It makes us wonder if we, in fact, are not as interesting, not as creative, or as talented as we thought. We hoped we were. Let's get past those self-defeating questions and go deeper into the real mysteries, the useful ones, the ones that help us write and propel us further into our journeys as writers. Let's try to get deep into those mysteries instead of insisting on suffering them. Here are some, maybe they feel like familiar questions. Questions like, why should I have to say be of interest to anyone? Why now? How do I live with what I write? How can I know if it's worthwhile, if it's real art? What if I'm wrong about everything and regret my choices? including but not limited to my choice to become a writer. What if I never get a chance to see my work in the world? These devastating questions all boil down to, am I real? Is my work as an extension of me real? We don't know if we are real because it's not certain that poetry is real. The culture at large doesn't acknowledge it as real. Having a poem succeed in your workshop or be published are some of the few ways we can convince ourselves that we might be real, at least as poets. But if we're not published, how can we be sure that we as poets are real? The question can't be answered because the answer is wrapped up in another question, that of time. Only time can tell if you are real. A moment can suffice. A moment can make you real. That moment when you know something is true that moment when you choose to put pen to paper. Over time, other things can become real, like a book or a body of work. Th this can't be made in a moment. It must become itself over time. 
you yourself are becoming yourself along with it, although you, believe it or not, are already real. The book in progress is asynchronically developing into itself in relation to you. It can't do a time-lapse growth like you can. You can take mushrooms one day and learn the secrets of the universe in a five-hour span. You can take your lifetime of circling the same tragedy or pain and suddenly out of the blue finally getting it. I don't need to keep hurting myself, for example, and breaking the cycle. Even if it takes years to build, a massive change can happen in an instant. That's what decisions are. You decide. A poet's developing work is a bunch of pages filled with decisions, some already made. Pages are leaves, like from trees. Leave, it's going somewhere. It is leaving, turning a page to the next. What comes next? How do you know what comes next? The mystery of time is, all, is solved when you consider the moment and the moment alone. Alone in a field of moments, each with their own root, like a blade of grass, connecting underground to the other solo moments. In a vast sea of life, you have the one life. You only have the moment you are in to write. Missing the moment is a loss. Write the moment wherever you are. You can revise or decide to erase the record later. The moment is the only time in which writing happens, in which a poem occurs. Like the tip of the pen is the only place the writing comes out of. Just that tiny speck moving across the page. Your whole universe of lived experience can funnel into that tiny tip. Write it out by hand. Read it out loud. Filter it through your body a number of times, like you're washing rice. For example, the first book's first poem. Uh, a book of poems is very simple, uh, like a seed, but it took lifetimes of forests to produce the seed. It's also very complex, a universe of cells and self made somewhat two-dimensional. How do you get all those dimensions back down to two? like getting toothpaste back into the tube and folded flat and packed in a flat pack and shipped via mail slot into a mailbox or a box of books, flat, flat receptacles, rectangles and squares. There lies all your blood and guts and your irrepressible genius and love and lust, your passion in a box. It's like you too will be one day as we all, as will all poets, all of us, but that's the end. We're looking at the beginning or at least the middle or the beginning of the end or the beginning of the middle or time is a loop. So we begin by looking at the hole it forms. Let's begin by looking at the entrance where we are entranced. The opening, the first poem in a first book of poems. Let's look at two, for example. We'll look at Marie Howe's poem, uh, part of Eve's discussion. Marie Howe's first book was called The Good Thief. It was selected as a National Poetry Series winner by Margaret Atwood and published by Persia Press in 1983. There it is. Um, part of Eve's discussion. It was like the moment when a bird decides not to eat from your hand and flies just before it flies. The moment the rivers seem to still and stop because a storm is coming, but there is no storm. 
as when a hundred starlings lift and bank together before they wheel and drop, very much like the moment driving on bad ice, when it occurs to you, your car could spin, just before it slowly begins to spin. Like the moment just before you forgot what it was you were about to say, it was like that. And after that, it was still like that, only all the time. So this poem opens up on medias res, in the middle of things. And as the poem goes on, things continue to get more middled. The poem stops time. It insists that a person can go back and find the millisecond where everything, before everything changes. Insists that there was ever a before when we all know that that certainty is always suspect. The poem tells the reader that some great grand it, what is it? the Garden of Eden, the loss of the Garden of Eden, the realization of the loss, or is it that, is that it simply a large, open, empty, fantastical before that happened before you opened this book to its first poem? Simply a time and space that needs this page in a book to mark it, to remind us we were in the middle of things in the middle of life, in the middle of being born, in the middle of dying before we stop for a moment to read this poem. Now think about that message as what an emerging poet chooses to be the first thing she says to her readers, her, to her book's new world. Marie Howe has chosen to say, nothing is ever the same after things happen. Some things are more consequential than others, but still, nothing stays still. The time passes and in that time happenings occur, decisions are made. You may go along on your path and even, even if you change direction a hundred times, it's still your path. You're only one. We cannot go back to before. The only way we can go back is to remember. To remember and in the nearly 40 years that Marie Howe has been writing poetry since her debut, she spends nearly every poem working in the medium of time and with the pigments of memory. Her first poem and her first book foretold her next poems and her next books. The path she set for herself rose up to meet her every step of the way. If you think about, if you think I'm saying there's something sort of predetermined or destined about a poet's trajectory, you may be right. A poet may be inscribing her future with her first poem in her first book, but it's not written in stone. It's written, as Yeats would say, in water. Within that first poem is a poet's signature. The Dictionary of the Occult, one of my favorite reference books, singles out the act of naming as having this quality. The essence of the person lies mystically in the name. What you inscribe there in that first poem more than announces a new voice and a new poet to the world. It affirms you to yourself. You are you in this first poem. The things that matter most to you will be there. No, the whole story won't be there. The fully lived truth is unmedious risk. You are living it now, not living in your memories, but living in the conditions past time set in motion. The wind from that motion will be there whistling through the first poem. A little digression on the proem. For those of us who are a bit split, biracial or bisexual or gender fluid, gender queer, uh, or astrological cusps or of two different disparate origins or have two names, 
uh, might want to consider the use of a proem if you are looking at a debut book of poems. Um, the proem is not, as I once embarrassingly thought, a nickname for a prose poem. Uh, it's a prefatory poem, um, a poem that floats in the pages of a book before the book starts. It hangs by a thread just outside the body of the book in what is called the front matter. This is just a little bit of information in case you happen to be putting a manuscript together for the first time, or maybe even the 10th time. In a book of poetry, it generally comes after the table of contents, but before the first section of poetry. It's weird. It's like a little window, a vamp, a little vamp, a little on-ramp. Um, but it can utterly change the light or make a big mood-altering overture. Uh, it can mislead. It can throw your voice. It's a great way to get two first poems in your one book. Because your poem stands alone and gets to speak for you or be the opening act for the headline poems. The first poem that comes afterward, often after a page with a numbered and or titled section, can be a second chance at a first poem. It's like having two names or twins or playing twins in a movie or giving yourself two roads diverging in a woods. It's like having second breakfast or two lovers, it's like being bicoastal. It's always an indication of where you are at that moment. Some of us who believe, some of us believe that one can be somewhere physically and somewhere else emotionally. And those of us who believe that generally uh, can get really into the pleasures of the poem. But back to the Marie Howe poem. When Marie Howe says, very much like the moment driving on bad ice, when it occurs to you, your car could spin just before it slowly begins to spin. She's saying that there's a moment. And then there's a realization of the moment. And then a moment after that. And we'll never know if our realization caused what came next or was simply an awareness of it. But Marie Howe is aware that she's creating that psychic spin in us, her reader. Their speaker may not be in control of the car spinning, but the poet is in control of making her reader feel dizzy. She spins us right round. And somehow that car stops right, in the, right at the exit to the ride and we step onto the platform with shaky legs and walk on changed to the next poems in the collection. We've been properly introduced. This is Marie Howe. When you write a poem, what essence will lie mystically in it? What truths of your own will set it, will set you on the path? What truths of your own will it set you on the path toward? It's not a clumsy first mark before the skill is developed and the art apparent. It's an ink block that announces to the ether, the reading world, the secret parallel universe we all know exists, announces that here is another planet, another star, another meteor galaxy. As you know, space exists in time and time exists in space. And space is what you have on the page, staring back at you. Use it to write yourself, your mystery. Now here we'll look at Terence Hayes' poem um, at Pegasus. Now this is from, it's the first poem in his first book called Muscular Music published by Tia Chucha Press in 1999. It, it's useful to, to, to note that Terence Hayes' first book did not win a prize and find publication in that way. His second book won the National Poetry Series but this book was published by a small press, Tia Chucha. Um, there's more than one way to get published, is what I'm trying to say. Um, this is at Pegasus. 
They are like those crazy women who tore Orpheus when he refused to sing. These men grinding in the strobe and black lights of Pegasus, all shadow and sound. I'm just here for the music, I tell the man who asks me to the floor, but I have held a boy on my back before. Curtis and I used to leap barefoot into the creek, dance among maggots and piss, beer bottles and tadpoles, slippery as sperm. We used to pull off our shirts and slap music into our skin. He wouldn't know me now at the edge of this lover's gyre. Glitter and steam, fire. Bodies blurred sexless by the music's spinning light. A young man slips his thumb into the mouth of an old one and I am not that far away. The whole scene raw and delicate as Curtis's foot gashed on a sunken bottle shard. They press hip to hip, each breathless as a boy carrying his friend on his back. The foot swelling green as the sewage in that creek. We never went back, but I remember his wheat better than I remember my first kiss. These men know something I used to know. How could I not find them beautiful? The way they dive and spill into each other, the way the dance floor takes them, wet and holy in its mouth. Now, this poem announces a poet who will always upend expectations, who is certain he can always surprise, who is surprised to be so certain. Hayes time travels in this poem. And it's always, we should not forget, something of a miracle when a poet can compel us to travel through space and time through his memories. It doesn't seem like it's that easy to craft such a trip, but we readers are so eager to go, usually we don't think twice when invited. As poets attempting to write poems that time travel, it really does feel like we have to build a whole freaking time machine. It's architectural, it's physics and velocity and centrifuge just to get us there. The obstacles are often our own inner psychic structures, usually protective, which cordon off certain areas of the memory if they are too dangerous for us to go there alone. One of the best techniques we have as poets is the device of the scene within the scene. It allows us to dive into the scene from the past while keeping one foot in the present. Funny how we believe the present is stable, and the past, the wavering, shimmering illusion. Really, the past is the thing that's set. The present is the wobbly thing that could still go anyway at all. In this poem, the speaker is at a gay club and thinking, and is thinking the boundaries, thinking about the boundaries between him and the gay men around him. He's wondering about his assumptions in those perceived boundaries. This leads to a dive into memory, a moment of intimacy of physicality and danger and love and rescue and devotion that is imprinted on the speaker. And the speaker needs to pause a moment to memorialize, inscribe the knowledge found, lost, and found again in that remembered embrace. That connection beyond identity and well into the divine human body. I am and am not myself entirely only. I am absolutely, I'm absolute in my selfness, yet willing to wander and wonder about what constitutes a self. I know and will not tell you everything about how I know or what I know, but I will tell you a story and it will be true. It's definitely me and it might be you, this poem. The essence of the person lies mystically in the name. Looking at these two poets' first poems in their first books, 
Let's look at their last names. Marie Howe. How? She is how. She's interested in how. How it all works, how we live and die. She yearns to know how, even now. Terence Hayes. Think of the homophone, Hayes. The reality is perceptible, but this poet won't lay out the total scenario for anyone. The reader reads Hayes and has to get through a bit of a fog, a bit of cover and cloud, a hovering curtain of heavy air. Hayes is layered. Hayes is weather. Hayes is a climate condition and conditions us to learn to see what he sees the way he sees it. Another poem that drops a second scene into a poem's already established scene is Nicole Seeley's classic, Virginia is for Lovers. Now, this is from her first book, Ordinary Beast. It's not the first poem in the book. I think it's slightly, it's slightly outside my arbitrary analytic rubric and is not the signature opening mark. I actually think that in this book, Seeley's signature mark is the last poem of the book, um, which is an interesting move. Um, I'm obsessed with this poem, Virginia is for Lovers. There's much to say about it, but I, I think I'll just, we're just think about how it drops in another scene, um, almost unrelated, um, into the original scene and creates a whole new psychic landscape, as well as a brilliant depiction of traumatized sensoria. Virginia is for Lovers. At Latoya's pride picnic, Leonard tells me he and his longtime love, Pete, broke up. He says Pete gave him the house in Virginia. Great, I say, that's the least his ass could do. I daydream my friend and me into his new house, sit us in the kitchen of his three bedroom, two bath brick colonial outside Hungry Mother Park, where legend has it, the Shawnee raided settlements with the wherewithal of wild children catching pigeons. A woman and her androgynous child escaped, wandering the wilderness, stuffing their mouths with the bark of chokecherry root. Such was the circumstance under which the woman collapsed. A child who could say nothing except hungry mother led help to the mountain where the woman lay, swelling as wood swells in humid air. Leonard's mouth is moving. Two boys hit a shuttlecock back and forth across an invisible net. A toddler struggles to pull her wagon from a sandbox. No, Leonard says. It's not a place where you live. Can you stop moving it? Thanks. No, Leonard says. It's not a place where you live. I got the H in V. H I before my friend could finish, and as if he'd been newly ordained, I took his hands and kissed them. So what Celie does here is more than time travel. She creates a second psychic space within the poem, a distant space where the speaker can process the traumatic news she's hearing but can't quite comprehend yet. The speaker needs this other space, the story of the lost woman and child to drop out of her present time and space in order to absorb the news her friend is telling her. This is a brilliant way to tell an inner story which has the pacing and landscape of one's psyche at the same time as the ostensible social narrative. There's much to learn here about the possibilities of voice, persona, doubleness, connectedness, the poetic choreography of communication and post-traumatic utterance. Seeley's debut is a great book to study in terms of persona, how many different voices a poet can inhabit while clearly maintaining a cohesive poetic voice of her own. 
I recommend Ordinary Beast, her debut book, as a class in itself on the subject. Um, moving along. Uh, yeah. Um, how can a poem sound like its author? Your voice is an amalgam of everything you've heard, read, immersed in, especially in a language medium. So that means books, articles, music lyrics, music without lyrics, uh, bird calls, sex sounds, sirens, loud crashes, podcasts, cicadas, eavesdroppings, late night TV laugh tracks, snoring, audiobooks, waves crashing, whistling, and headphones. A lot of the influence is passively absorbed, like how you got your accent. You didn't try to have an accent. It formed along with your voice, depending on context. And some of the influence is not passive. These are books you fell in love with. These are the songs you learned every word to and made yours. They are a part of your voice now. The songs you love less are less a part of your voice. That's why we have such stubborn soft spots for the songs we loved in adolescence. We formed ourselves around them. We chose to. It might have been the first step in self-determination, falling in love with the book or a song on our own for the first time. Most of us have had a similar experience. Um, and I think that the great new film, Turning Red, absolutely nails this, um, this moment of pubescence or adolescence, first desire vis-a-vis um, -vis, uh, band. Um, it becomes part of your voice. Same as when someone tells you, you can't sing. A part of your voice gets shut down. A part of your exquisite expressive apparatus. This apparatus is extremely expressive as well as resilient and powerful. When someone hurts your feelings about your voice, it's very similar to someone causing injury to your voice box. This use becomes part of your voice. Silence feels safer than speaking. Quietude can become a place of retreat instead of a place of peace. Some of us have hurt voices. You're so loud, why do you have to yell? If you didn't use that tone of voice, people would listen to you. You love to hear yourself talk, don't you? Many of us have hurt voices that we've turned into polite, mellifluous, harmonious, harmless, nice voices. Because if we hadn't transformed our dragon squawk into sweetness, nobody would listen to us. Poetry comes in to all of this, a reactive chemical. Once you've had the revelation that not only do you want to read the world, you want to participate in the making of it, once books stop being simply a way to imagine your reality and begin to beckon you to come inside, to step inside and tell us what you wanna say, that's when you become a writer. It's clear as being born. One minute you're in your private womb of reading, safe and happy and floating in the world somebody else made, and the next minute you come out and begin the life work of writing yourself into existence. Your voice is an amalgam and an instrument and a survivor and a lifeline extending past your lifetime. Someone might read you when you're no longer on this earth. Your voice might be spoken if they read your poem aloud. It will live without you. It will stand for you, be you in your own absence, replace you with this part of you. You will sound like yourself in your writing if you do not deliberately injure your voice. You will sound like yourself if you, like most poets, endeavor to live your truth. When you lie to yourself about who you, 
who you are, your poetry will not sound like yourself. But what is lying? Don't we all fudge the truth or sidestep painful realizations all the time? And isn't that part of being human and of being a poet, which is like being extra human? How dare I say that you must live your truth to write your truth? And how judgmental I am to say that a person shouldn't lie. Lies are too valuable, a human invention to throw away like that. The psyche needs lies. The work needs lies. We believe falsehoods in order to exist. Sometimes those falsehoods are devastating and dangerous, but we're in pain, we're racked with guilt, we can't focus for more than three minutes, we don't have time to categorize our lies and try to glean what is a full truth and what is bullshit. It's okay, it's okay to mix truth and uncertainty together. It's okay not to have your shit figured out and your mind split into guilty thirds and quarters and slivers. Worrying about rent, and deciding to blow some money on some material item to bring comfort, that's a mixed truth. It's okay to live mixed truths, they're ours. Your voice will develop, lengthen, deepen, access higher and lower notes. The more you practice using it on the widest possible range of truths, mixed truths, necessary lies, true stories, things that are just as true as their opposites. Like a lot of aphorisms are like that. And the more deeply you can intuit those lies that are damaging, that do not honor or deserve your voice. How to sound like yourself. Learn to notice it when you sing the false note. Listen to those poets and singers and storytellers you helplessly believe, the ones you'd follow anywhere. They are telling the truth that you're equipped to hear, and that is how you expand your own range of hearing and speaking. This means being willing to learn how to read the differences between your performative truths, your secret truths, your provisional truths, and your unshakable truths. Let there be as many categories as you need. This growth takes your whole life. You don't have to have it down precociously. And speaking of precocious, if you were precocious or a gifted child, many poets were, it turns out, you may have a hair trigger reaction to deep discussions of voice. Many precocious children, children who have the ability to comprehend, read, or connect way ahead of their years developmentally have a pretty serious wound to their voice. And I'm speaking to you, if that is you. Uh, they were often not heard, not listened to, told to shut up, told to go away, do something else. Adults find extremely verbal kids hard to be around. And they often, with or without meaning to, silence them or ignore them or otherwise hurt them. And this wound can be the thing that makes a person become a poet. It's a tight circle, ours. A poem sounds like its author when the author knows what she sounds like and chooses to sound like that anyway. Angry, lovesick, overwrought, broken. A great practical way to find out if you sound like yourself is to write epistolary poems. Lucy Brock Broida would say that we need to know in a poem who is speaking to whom, through what mask, and for what ostensible purpose. All this information becomes apparent in a letter poem. The speaker knows why she's writing, but must tell the letter's recipient. And so we, the poem's reader, get to overhear it. The poet, in showing the relationship and the request, the reason for the letter, shows the poet's relation to storytelling, truth, performance, manipulation, verbal distractions, pithiness or verbosity, emotional openness or guardedness, and everything else. 
when you reveal yourself, all is revealed to all except maybe yourself. You don't have to know everything. You just need to give your poems permission to reveal what they know. Here's a poem I wrote struggling with these ideas. It was published in my book, The Octopus Museum. It's called Identity and Community, or There Is No I in C. And it's up on the screen. Identity and community. There is no I in C. I don't want to be surrounded by people or even one person, but I don't want to always be alone. The answer is to become my own pet, hungry for plenty in a plentiful place. There is no solitude, only, only. At seaside, I have that familiar sense of being left out, too far to glean the secret. How go in? What an inhuman surface the sea has, always open. I'm too afraid to go in. I give no yes, full of shame, but refuse to litter ever. I pick myself up. Wind has power, sun has power. What is power's source? There's no privacy outside, we've invaded it. There's no life outside empire. All paradise is performance for people who pay. Perhaps I'm an invader and feel I haven't paid. What a waste to have lost everything in mind. Watching three mom-like women try to go in. I'm green, I wanna join them, but they're not my women. I join the women, apologizing. They splash away from me, they're their pod. People are alien. I'm an unknown story, erasing myself with seawater. There goes my honey and fog my shoulders and legs. What could be queerer than this queer tug lust for what already is, who already am, but other of it? Happens? That kind of desire anymore? Oh, I am that queer thing pulling in greener than the blue sea. I'm new with envy. Beauty washing over itself, no reflection, no claim, nothing to see. If there's anything bluer than the ocean, it's its greenness. It's its turquoise blood mixing me. I was a woman alone in the sea. Don't tell anybody, I tell myself. Don't try to remember this. Don't document it. Try to remember to write down not to document it. How can a poem become art? Not just a diary entry. The answer to this is a poem that becomes art, becomes art because it's alive. It's very hard to see why or if a po poem isn't alive. It's very hard to see that something is blocking the life force of a poem. It's hard to see that blockage if they're your poems. They feel alive to you. But a living poem, one that is alive, is evident to the reader. A reader knows the living poem when we see it but a reader may not be able to diagnose a non-alive poem. Uh, readers are not coroners. We just open a different book. What on earth do I mean by alive? What kind of a useless term is that? Think about voice and then think about your mark, signature, name, and think about your days and years and nights and decades. And then think what links all of these things together? 
what makes sense of one, the desire to connect, the need to communicate, the drive to be heard, to be known, to be understood by other humans who also desire to be understood, to be known, to be heard, to communicate. This desire, drive, need is that aliveness. If that motive, that purpose can be put into writing, the poem will live. If you insist on pretending that nothing matters or you don't care if anybody hears you, you've cut the lifeline and we have no way to hear you. You don't wanna be heard and the poem will not live and it will be read, unread and unremembered. Now I'm gonna show you one of my own poems, how it went from lifeless to living. Um, you, you might not agree, but um, I'm gonna read the finished version first because I want you to see what we ended up with and what I will call an alive poem, a living poem. And then we'll see how I got there. So this is a poem called Artless. Um, now, it's, this is a funny poem because it's like, um, it became, it was well published. It became one of my hit singles. Um, it was published in the New Yorker and then it was selected for best American poetry and it has been anthologized a bunch. It's kind of got this life of its own. Um, but there's a mistake in it that I found years and years and years later that's still there and maybe we can look at it and find it. Um, but for right now here, I'm going to read the finished poem. Um, this is Artless. Artless is my heart. A stranger berry there never was, tartless gone sour in the sun, in the sunroom or moonroof, roofless. No poetry, plain. No fresh special recipe to bless. All I've ever made with these hands and life, less substance, more rind, mostly rim and trim, meatless, but making much smoke in the old smokehouse, no less. Fatted from the day, overripe and even toxic at eve, Nonetheless, in the end, if you must know, if I must bend, wasteless to that excruciation. No marvel, no harvest left me speechless. Yet I find myself somehow with heart, aloneless, with heart, fighting fire with fire, flightless. That loud hub of us, meat stub of us, beating us senseless. Spectacular in its way, its way of not seeing, congealing, dayless, but in everydayness. In that hopeful haunting, a lesser way of saying darkness, there is a silencelessness for the pressing question. Heart, what art you? War, star, part? Or less, playing a part, staying apart from the one who loves, loveless. So I'm going to tell you where, where the mistake is. If you go up what, to, the, to the title page, um, you'll see the second stanza. The last line of the second stanza is ruthless. A decade later, I realized it really should have been ruthless. R-U-T-H-L-E-S-S. -S. Ruthless. It absolutely should have been ruthless. I think I might change it. Um, Anyway, so that's the finished poem. Now, I found um, in my computer, um, dated from eight months before this, my, my next draft um, of the poem, 
this poem, um, which I then pulled out, you know how you might have like a, like a folder in your computer that's like snippets or like pieces that you might use someday. This was sort of one of those um, that I pulled out. So um, this is the very first draft of the poem that became Artless and it's called Heart, Herd. And I have to tell you, it's embarrassing to do this, like so embarrassing, but I'm going to be um, at the risk of being cringe. I'm just going to be vulnerable. Sweet flower berry, perfect. I'm sour in the sun. Or not the sun, just the regular room temperature room. No poetry, no special making, no harvest of wonder, just rim, just smoke, fatted from the day, overripe and even toxic. In the end, if you must know, if you, if it must bend to that excruciation. No marvel, no harvest. Again, I say, just wondering. Spectacular in its way, its way of not seeing, which is congealing in its own dayness. It's just everydayness. This hopeful haunting, whiskey tarted, menacefroid, accumulated, totally suicidal, blossom. My loveliness, my all over. Okay. So I am blushing with embarrassment at how much I hate this draft. And honestly, if I had, if I saw it now, I'd be like, oh, this is un unsalvageable. However, we can look at it. Um, so you can see the places where I, as the poet, was sort of avoiding or skirting the issue or apologizing. Places where I'm apologizing, for example, um, gone sour in the sun or not the sun, just the regular room temperature room. I'm trying to make a little joke, a kind of a little uh, wordplay to get you to not see what I'm trying to say here. Um, uh, some of it you'll notice that I kept. There are some salvageable parts. Um, and then toward the end here, you can see how I did not know how to end this poem. And I start getting um, this is a pretty common thing. You don't know how to end a poem. Or you don't really know what you were trying to say. And you don't know if you did it or not. You get kind of like nonsensical. Um, that was a lot. That was a very popular choice for me to get nonsensical toward the end. Um, whiskey tarted. That's, that's promising, right? Whiskey tarted. That's sort of interesting. Um, Manassefroid is a totally made up word. I don't know, even know what it means. I guess it means some kind of cold menace. Um, Accumulated, totally suicidal. Um, that's over overstating it, right? Um, blossom, my loveliness, my all over. It kind of just, it kind of gives up. Um, trying to the reason why I'm bringing it is because when you look at what a draft is and 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 you can compare it with your final poem, you can see where you made your mistakes in your draft. You can see why and where you choked, uh, why where you're making excuses and, and why. Um, you can see why you're afraid, what you don't want, um, what you don't want to come to terms with. And so in this way, we can see that we're never really done with the truth, um, which keeps becoming itself. It never stops. Um, so that's sort of what a way to look at a poem that had a, that became itself. And then you look at sort of what it was when it was, um, a baby poem and it just looks like it's pieces. Um, and I can see that it's a lot of, um, a lot of posturing, really afraid 
to get to the truth of the poem, which in the end, what I ended up having to say is that when you remove everything and you say, and you subtract and subtract and subtract less, 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 every third, every third line has the word less in it. When you start subtracting everything, what are we left with? Is there a heart? Is there an essence? Is there a truth to us? Or without love, is there anything at all? Um, so uh, just some very final thoughts here. Um, a couple final thoughts and then a, um, and then a brief poem from my forthcoming collection. Um, number one, seek breakthroughs. Uh, try writing in a way that you haven't tried before. Uh, I, I don't mean exercises or prompts. Um, I mean, let go, let it flow. Let the messy draft have a place in your practice, especially if that stresses you out. Uh, let the long horizontal lines change your diction, even if that scares you. Be simple and plain and don't hide behind your gorgeous phrases, especially if that's terrifying. Number two, you don't have to be smart in your poems. Even if you're a genius, we're not that impressed uh, because genius is overrated. Because the deep repository of wisdom, your back brain, your plug into um, to cosmic unconsciousness, your ancient muse, knows much more than you do. Let them speak their wisdom. You take notes. You are the amanuensis of that great wisdom. Three, you can try to seduce your reader in your poems. Try to make us fall madly in love or lust with you, but we can see that you're doing it. So as long as you're okay with that. Number four, pay attention to learn when opportunity ends and exploitation begins. Learn to see the signs. When something feels borderline exploitative, always ask yourself who benefits. Five, never apologize for writing love poems, for writing sad poems, for writing angry poems, political poems, personal poems, traumatic poems. If they're alive and true and you stand behind their motives and their purposes, they shouldn't be apologized for. Poets have gotten into the habit of half jokingly apologizing for our sad poems and whatnot. Let's all agree to stop apologizing for poems that do what poems do. In all things, but especially in the world of poetry publishing, social media, family get-togethers, alone on the page with your mind and your memories, and parties where you don't know anyone, go where the love is. Seven, be generous. People remember. You remember. Your work is the work of remembering. You must remember this life, this moment, for the next waves of poets and readers who will want to travel to you. They will want to find you. Be generous to them, welcome them, show them your life and your truth. As you are up to now, living, breathing, your full self, unsolved mysteries and all. Your poetic gift was given to you for the purpose of giving it back as poetry, as yourself, fully and deeply to this world. Let your words transform you into the person you speak from. After all, those words are the ones you choose to say, the ones that prove you're alive here on earth with us. I'll close with a new poem from my forthcoming collection, Tanya, which comes out in spring 2023 with Knopf. Moving far away. I hear they're trying to make borders in water now. To declare it a place, impose a shape, 
dissolve the solvent. It's no solution to our probable problem. I'll never see you again, I say on myself, said to myself. We'll be well below alone now. Can I be a good friend to you if I move so far away? Haven't seen you in years, but I like a rough edge. Island broken off a big bully. I'll use up all my firewood on you. Sorcery, what turned into me? An iron foot, a leg of log, a wish for symmetry. My fire handed down to me by cauldron witches in their longish unauthorized youth. Broken crest rising, rinsed of desire, full of push, full of pull and push, no rush to finish or to vanish. As if water didn't wave and bring tidings and answer me like an animal, jealous, crushed, washing herself. I'll never forget you told me never to forget, but I did. Your voice, a needle threaded, headed for my open wound. Already burned clean for a clean split. Thank you. Brenda, thank you so much. I have pages of notes from that. I'm sure I'm not the only one. Um, Thank you so much. We we have a few minutes and we have one question that's come through. So um, I'd like to give that question some attention. Um, what do you see as the relationship between reality, projection, and the notion of memory? What is the relationship? What do you see as the relationship between reality, projection, and the notion of memory? I think that projection is definitely threaded all through the other two completely. Um, there is no reality without a blend. We're, we're always coming at reality, present reality with memories, whether we're accessing them consciously and momentarily or not. But, and projection is never far behind. It, it all depends on what we're interacting with in that moment of reality and what we need to protect ourselves from. Projection is always defensive. You know, so we're, we, 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 we employ projection when we need to defend ourselves from something we're seeing. Um, and that usually is learned from something in our past that we're accessing. So it's a, it's a triangulation. Um, you know, when do, we live, when do we live through a moment in our present time where we find something that we have absolutely no defense, not defensive about it all, no, no memories connected to it. Like everything we touch, family dinner, your kid, your, this, you know, a blank page, you know, is traumatic. We have so much, like you totally project, this blank page means that I'm, I'm useless because I didn't write anything today. You know, like it's all, it's a clusterfuck, honestly. Projection, memory, reality. They're an unholy trinity. That's great. Thank you so much. Um, we have one more question that just came in. Um, can you say more about, I'm sorry, can you say more about your point about asking yourself who benefits? Mm. This was in reference to writing about other people. Yeah. So I stuck that in there because just in case you're that person who, because I never know who's listening to these. I think that young poets are getting exploited, frankly. I think I'm seeing a lot of young poets, a lot of people just starting out. And I, I feel like everybody's under all this pressure to sort of like have a platform and to sell this 
persona or sell this work. And I just, I don't mean that that's bad. I, I think that the more people can see your work, the better, but, um, but the thing I wanted to just say, and the only thing I wanted to say was learn to see, pay attention to when opportunity ends and exploitation begins. Um, learn to see the signs. When something feels borderline exploitative, always ask yourself who benefits. So let's say somebody asks you, hey, come do my event, whatever it is for free. And it feels exploitative. Think about who benefits. They're gonna tell you, you benefit, but maybe it's them. And then you just have to figure out why. Um, it's, and if you, in the question of like, well, these are my friends, why would they exploit, they're not exploiting me, but maybe they, maybe they have their own motives and you are just a part of that. Maybe you're feeling like, yeah, I wanna be part of that too. So I donate my time and I volunteer. That's just one example, but there's like a way that, there's a way that something, I don't know, it's worse now because there's so much um, digital media and so things go viral and things move so fast and who owns what and you sign away your rights and then people have, I mean, I don't know, I have like contracts where rights are just all over the place. But um, yeah, so as you see your work coming out of you and becoming something that might be on a mag in a magazine or in a book or out in the world in some way, it's just important to sort of be like opportunity exploitation. Like, where do I stand with that? And just be aware. That's all. Like, learn to see the signs when someone's exploiting you because they're like, sometimes they'll be very open. Like, we don't have any people of color on this panel. So you're it. Learn to figure out like, okay, I, I can see that that is, I am being tokenized. I'm being expected to perform a kind of role here so that they feel a certain way about themselves in their event. And just know it. You may not, you may still decide to do it, but it, it just means that you, you're aware of it. That's all. It's just let, learn to figure out where opportunity and exploitation connect. If you're a person who happens, so it was like a little a funny little piece that I put in this talk that was just like, in case anybody's dealing with that, there it is. And of course that's a, comes back into the, into the Q and A. So I'm glad, glad you asked. That's a great question. Um, I'm, I'm glad we got to talk about that. Um, I'd love to keep talking, but we've reached the end of the hour, unfortunately. Um, Brenda, thank you so much for being with us today. It was a pleasure and as, joy. Oh, and as a reminder, this event was recorded and will be available on the CSWR website in the next week or so. Um, everyone in attendance and everyone who registered will get um, a link in their email um, to that video once it's live. And thank all of you. Thanks to all of you for tuning in today. Take good care. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Sponsor, Center for the Study of World Religions. Copyright 2022, the President and Fellows of Harvard.